2: If you covered cops or courts, you knew about this case. It was just one of those things that you learned about Tampa when you came here, particularly if you're around cops and prosecutors and people like that.
3: The story of my brother's murder came back into the news in the fall of 1997. One of John's killers, Johnny Paul Witt, had been executed 12 years before. The other one, Gary Tillman, had been sentenced to life in
1: prison. Now he was up for parole. Andy and I flew down to speak at the hearing. I was there on a mission, you know, that's how I personally felt, I was there on a mission to put this guy away for the rest of his life, make sure he never gets out. Look, you and I wanted to win, that's the bottom line, we wanted to win, we needed to win, so we were going to do whatever the fuck they
3: told us to do, basically. I mean, for me, it was a bit, I'm sure for you too, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was very vulnerable, it was very vulnerable, it was very, I felt uncomfortable. I'm David Kushner. This is Alligator Candy. On the morning of the hearing, the St. Petersburg Times headline was, Hearing Will Resurrect 1973 Horror. Sue Carlton wrote the piece.
2: I did reach out to your family before the parole hearing, and I think it, I was politely declined, and that was, that was fine. Even with the family not wanting to talk at the time, there was no lack of people who were able to talk about how they felt about this guy.
3: Sue had been to other parole hearings, but not for a case as notorious as this.
2: I I went super early, I remember, because I I knew it was going to be a busy day and wanting to have a seat so I could see everybody and and make sure that I could cover it.
3: The small windowless courtroom not only had all the other people waiting for their hearings, there was also a row of reporters and cameras in the back. i never spoken publicly about John's death. As a journalist... I was used to writing the stories, not being the subject. It was hard enough to have to make our statements at all, let alone having to do them
1: while being filmed for the evening news. You and I decided that, well, we decided that ahead of time that we didn't want our faces to be shown and they were very good about it. But it's actually looking back, it's really kind of sad. You know, it's like we
3: were just, we were scared. Yeah, I remember that. And also, I remember, honestly, like, once you and I... I remember once you and I made the decision to do this, it was a project for you and
1: I yes, together. It was wonderful. Which was really cool. It was really powerful. Now's the opportunity to do something for John. It felt so purposeful, urgent, and empowering
3: to be with Andy fighting for John after all these years. We'd never done anything like it. Andy and I sat with Walker and the state prosecutor in a row of folding chairs. The commissioners took their seats up front on a small raised platform facing us. Tillman wasn't there, but his mother and brother had come to speak on his behalf. It felt strange to see them sitting a few feet away, two people there to defend their son and brother, like Andy and I were there for John. We listened closely to their statements about how Tillman was working hard on his studies and they hoped the parole commission would let him out. Their attorney went next, talking about all the rehabilitation programs that Tillman had been involved with, how he got good grades in prison classes, he was leading a Bible study group. When they were
1: through, it was our turn. From our perspective, looking at the commissioners, the commissioners, three of them, were in front of us, and they were up on a like a riser, and we were, you know, I don't know, twenty feet, you know, from them at a, at this table. Walker went first. He stood beside us.
3: He told the commissioners that he was working as an officer with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department when John went missing. He said that in his decades in law enforcement, John's murder was the most brutal and sadistic homicide of a child that he'd ever been assigned to. Then he got into the details. He told the board about the abduction, the attack. As he was describing the assault... He reached into a gym bag at his side and took out a long metal rod, a giant drill bit. The night before, Walker asked us if we were okay with him using it as a prop for emphasis. We told him to go for it. But as I watched him standing there, holding the drill bit over his shoulder, right next to me, the reality of the moment, of the attack on my brother, overwhelmed me.
1: Then Walker smashed it on the table. It was a loud crash. I mean, it was metal on... I don't know if the table was metal or wood, but it sounded like metal on metal. It was a big sound. When he did that, I mean, I think I jumped, even though I knew he was going to drop it. That's when I felt that, okay, we're there. We're in it now. Mm. You know, This is it. That's when it went into an emotional place, Mm -hmm. which we needed it to do in order for the commissioners to feel something.
2: I'll tell you this. I go to, I go to those hearings a fair amount. You got to keep, you know, there's usually little kids there. It's hard to keep them quiet because it's boring and blah, blah, blah. It was silent. I mean, it was just silent.
3: Andy went next. I watched him there, leaning toward the microphone. He held a speech and an old school photo of John in his hands. Andy and I had always been best friends, but our experiences with John's murders were so different, shaped by our own personalities and our difference in ages at the time. I'd always wanted to know everything that I didn't remember, that I was too young to understand. Andy, on the other hand, had to live with the horror of what he knew. But going through this experience together, hearing the details in the police report, preparing our statements figuring out how to make John real for people who never knew him or loved him,
1: it brought us even closer. I took my time. I was very slow, very deliberate. And I took, it was a color picture, an 8x10 of John, like a headshot of him from school. It was a school picture. But I put it up, I propped it up on something facing the commissioners so that they could see it while I was talking about my experience. Because what, what we were there to do, you and I, was to talk about the impact of what happened, with the impact on us and our lives and our family. And so I put up the picture. I started to give my talk. I watched closely as the commissioners listened to Andy. He got more and more assured as he kept reading. But what caught me unexpected in the moment is that I started to feel an anger. I started to get way more firm and, and again, more intentional, and I... I felt this emotional, this rage start to build. And there was a point where I even banged my fist on the table. I knew how hard
3: it was for him. Like me, he'd spent so long bottling up his experience. Then it was my turn. I was like, yeah, brother, come on, Mm -hmm. go on. My hands started sweating and my heart pounded. Underneath the table... I gripped John's lucky red rabbit's foot, the soft fur and cold metal clasp pressed against my palm. Though a psychologist had told Andy and I to talk about our own suffering as a way to personalize our case and create more emotional impact, I felt uncomfortable drawing attention to myself. But I also wanted to do whatever I could to keep parole from happening. I showed the parole board an old black-and-white photo of me, Andy, and John sitting by our fireplace, three brothers, happy and smiling. I said, John was extraordinarily playful and loving. He was a dream to me, taking me under his wing, inventing new games every day. Although I am sincerely grateful for the opportunity to speak here today, I am physically sickened by this experience. I suffer from the vulnerability of walking around like an open wound, from fear, often irrational, for myself and my loved ones. Most of all, I suffer every day because I am without John. I cannot watch him grow up. I cannot share my life. I miss him. Though I know I will never hold my brother again, I have had some peace of mind knowing that one of his murderers has been executed and the other is spending his life in prison. I never imagined that Gary Tillman could actually be considered for parole. I appreciate and respect your roles as commissioners, but I also appeal to you as brothers, sisters, children, and parents. Would you want your child riding a bike while this murderer takes a stroll through the park? No one should have to suffer even a moment of fear as a result of this hearing. 24 years ago, the sanctity of the people of Tampa was shattered by this case. They will surely know if that happens again this morning.
2: I remember you were trying to paint a picture of him, but it just, it was—it made it worse. I don't know that you need to humanize an 11-year-old boy any more than saying he's an 11-year-old boy with, you know, brown hair and a red bike, but I don't know that you could have humanized him any more than you guys did.
3: When it was time for the commissioners to deliberate, everyone sat silently. I watched as the lead commissioner removed his glasses, bowed his head, and wiped his eyes. And like,
1: that's when I knew, you know, that's when I knew we had him. Sue Carlton thought the same thing.
2: hear this stuff all day long they live this stuff and this guy he was listening to the facts and you could see him just this look on it came over his face and he took off his glasses and he looked down and you could see i mean he wasn't sobbing but his eyes were just full of tears and i i you you just don't see people that work in the court system do that very often you just don't
1: the commissioners started leaning in toward each other. Like, I remember seeing them leaning toward each other and they're, they're talking very quietly. And at one point, one of the commissioners said, and we could hear it on the microphone, does someone have a calculator?
2: And I remember they went through and they specified. They're like, OK, we're going to add years for the heinousness of the crime. And they're doing the calculator.
1: They didn't really explain this to a, ahead of time yeah. to us, that they were going to sit there and right in front of everyone start figuring out how many years to add to the sentence. And when they asked for a calculator, that's when I got it.
2: And they just went through point by point by point. They just kept adding years and add, literally adding years uh, on a calculator, literally adding years before they came up with 2100.
3: Tillman was sentenced to another 102 years in prison.
2: They just essentially said, you didn't just get life. We're going to give you so far beyond life. That's how bad this is.
3: Sue Carlton's story in the paper the next day started. Even 24 years later, the murder of 11-year-old Jonathan Kushner, a case seared into the hearts of Tampa residents, was enough to bring tears to the eyes of a member of the State Parole Commission. Walker told Sue, On one side, it makes me feel good. Hopefully he'll never see society. On the other side, it doesn't bring Jonathan Kushner back. Andy and I felt relieved and grateful about the outcome of
1: the hearing. I felt really just released of something, you know, and so much stronger. I felt closer to John through this experience. You know, that was one of the biggest feelings I had. I was able to stand up for my younger brother. Andy and I found a phone booth down the hall. We
3: called our parents and shared the news. They thanked us and said they were proud of what we had done. And for those few moments, I felt like a family of five again.
0: Okay, so it's Sunday, January
2: 19th. Nineteenth.
0: For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard.
1: I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? I said,
0: oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai, and then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. By
3: the early aughts, I was finishing up my first book, Masters of Doom, about the two guys behind the groundbreaking computer games, Doom and Quake. But as I was thinking about the subject of my next book, I kept coming back to the story at the center of my life. Despite everything I'd learned over the years about John's murder, even the details about the crime and the candy, it was still raising new questions for me. I had children and my wife and I had to find a way to stay sane, to remain functional, to not let the fear overwhelm the freedom we wanted them to have. So I read, I went to therapy. I did what I could do to manage. The culture had changed since I was a kid. There was 24-7 cable news and amber alerts. Parents became hypervigilant about the dangers that seemed to lurk out in the world. Free time became regimented. Psychologists coined a new term, helicopter parents. How had we gone from a generation of freedom to a generation of fear? How could I find the strength to give my own kids the freedom they needed? I wanted to explore these questions as a father, as a brother, and as a journalist. And I wanted to answer the question that everyone asked me when they heard about my family's story. How did my parents survive?
1: You know, when people would ask me that, I'd never felt I had the right to answer on their behalf. You know, That mm-hmm. was like the biggest thing I would think. And so I would say to them the truth. I would say, I don't know. I don't have any idea how they did it. Um, And that was the most I could say. I talked with my mom and
3: dad about the idea of writing a book about John. They were supportive. Later, my dad wrote me an email that said, what a heavy, heavy task you've laid out for yourself. But it will also be an enlightening one in the sense that it will make you lighter and even wiser than you are now.
1: Well, and he had been working for, you know, yeah. years. He wanted to write a book about suffering. Back in the
3: 80s, my dad had written a proposal for an anthropology book. He described how John's death had inspired him to study different people's responses to suffering. He pursued the question with Ellie Wiesel, with his colleagues, and in the grief support groups he and my mom started. My dad wrote that it began as a kind of self-therapy and evolved into a curiosity about how people transform suffering into positive approaches to surviving. In recent years, psychologists have started calling this post-traumatic growth. A psychologist friend of my parents, John Brantner, said grief is like pushing down a metal spring. But when joy finally comes, the spring rises even higher. Essentially, great loss can also make great joy possible. My mom once told me, you appreciate when things are good. Happiness makes you feel very happy. Laughing feels so good. Going somewhere and having a good time feels so good. So you become a happy person. My dad retired before he got around to writing his book. And soon we faced a new challenge. He was diagnosed with lung cancer. Andy wanted to capture my dad's life story and
1: my mom's,
3: so he flew down to Tampa to interview them.
1: You know, I I did it chronologically from them talking about their grandparents, their parents, and then them as children and growing up and what that was like.
0: It was a lot of lakes in Minneapolis, so we would ride streetcars to get to the, the beaches I was goalkeeper on the Bronx Science soccer team, and everywhere we went, the other team would yell at us and poke fun at us and say anti-Semitic things to us, and we would fight back.
3: They told Andy stories from their childhood.
0: So one Wednesday, I shall never forget, my friend with whom I was sharing an apartment at that time in Tucson said, uh, I'm going to a party, uh, such and such a sister, and you have to go and you have to bring a guitar. I said, okay, I'll do it. We go to the party, and I hear people and music, and a woman comes out of the room holding a cigarette. And she says, do you have a light? And who was that woman? Rainy. Their friends
3: had conspired to get my mom and dad to the party so they would meet.
0: She had told me, if you meet each other, you're going to get married. She didn't tell me that.
3: But as my brother's questions got closer to 1973, to the year John was killed,
1: Andy couldn't go on. I kind of froze and I was scared and I I so badly wanted to talk to them and I didn't know how you know knowing that how much they suffered as parents like me Andy had been quiet about John all these years The closest we got was my just asking him you know are you afraid of dying you know how do you feel about it and and he said I'm fine you know mm-hmm. I'm fine you know you all are the ones really worrying My dad died
3: in 2010 Friends and family came to our house for Shiva. The last time they were all there, I realized, it was for John. It felt inevitable for me to ask about my brother. I asked people what John was like as a kid, how they came together on his behalf when he was missing, how they lived with the aftermath. When I needed some time alone, I went into my dad's office in the corner of the house. I wanted to feel his presence and find some solace. How had he gotten through the death that he had experienced? How had he lived knowing that death was everywhere, that murder was real, that you could walk out the door one morning and never come back? Near his desk, I found a cloth folder stuffed with papers. Inside, I saw his old book proposal, some family recipes. Then I found some notes titled, On Grief. It felt like he had left it for me to find that day. You will get through this, my father had written.
0: Much as you might not want to get through it from moment to moment right now.
3: You will get through it, because you have no choice really.
0: The question then becomes...
1: What shall I do with the rest of my life? His answer?
0: Number one, the situation is real and will remain so.
1: Number two, there's nothing you can do about it, nothing at all.
0: Number three, now what happens with you?
1: Number four, who do
3: you want to be? I knew the answer to that last question who I wanted to be. I wanted to be my brother's brother. I wanted to finally write his story. I wanted to harvest the memories of everyone I could, to read everything I hadn't read, to pour over the case file, talk with the cops, talk with the volunteers, my family, our friends. I wanted to dig up the past with the help of others and tell the story of freedom and fear, of adventure and loss, of murder and mystery and survival. And I wanted, as much as I could, to bring John back to life. I spent two years researching and writing what would become my memoir about John. I called it Alligator Candy. The experience transformed me. And like my dad predicted, it made me feel lighter. After the book came out, I started hearing from readers who had their own stories about John that they'd also been carrying around for decades. The trauma went far beyond my family, I realized. It was a community trauma, a citywide loss of innocence. One woman, the daughter of one of my dad's colleagues, emailed me to say she'd been named for John. Another woman, who'd been a kid at the time, told me how affected she had been seeing the good of our community in the face of such evil. She grew up to become the mayor of Tampa. Then, a couple years ago, I got the most surprising email of all. It was from the girl in the police report. The one who'd seen and escaped John's killers in the woods not long before his death. She was grown now, and she had one last bit of the story that eluded me. What my brother encountered when he biked through the woods on his last day.
4: Not everybody's lucky enough to be the person that got away.
3: On the next episode of Alligator Candy.
0: Can I read it?
3: Yeah, what does it say? Yeah,
0: Jonathan, his life. This is what I wanted. I didn't want his death. This is his life.
3: This episode was produced by Alex Sujon Laughlin, with production support from James T. Green. Our executive editor is Sarah Nix. Lacey Roberts is our managing producer. Executive producing by me, David Kushner, along with Greta Cohn and Emmy Rossum. Sound design by James T. Green and Eli Cohn and Nocturnal Sound. Rick Kwan is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Jess Shane and Debbie Daughtry. Our USG audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Josh Block, Jennifer Sears, and Daniel Welsh. This podcast was inspired by my memoir, Alligator Candy. This is a USG audio podcast in collaboration with Transmitter Media. For more information, go to our website, usgaudio.com.